doctrine of creation. So tie perfectly into um, Pastor Bob's sermon today on Colossians 1, 15 to 20. The uh, Reformed theologian Herman Bavink said, the starting point of all true religion is the doctrine of creation. The doctrine of creation is what divides those who have a biblical worldview and those who don't have a biblical worldview. Because of the lack of the understanding of the doctrine of creation, we have a a church and a culture that's both in a crisis. So if, if I were to ask you, what are some issues that the church and culture is facing today, what would you guys say? Okay, the, okay, so issues we see in the church today, and the, also the church and in the culture, one of them is evolution. And that's also creeping into the church and people's trust in the book of Genesis is uh, being... Any other issues that the church and the culture is facing... Today, today's crisis. Yeah. Definitely uh, postmodernism. It doesn't take long when you go out for evangelism, when you're trying to share the gospel with somebody. They come and tell you, you have your truth and I have my truth. So we have evolution, we have postmodernism. Anything else that, the, that we're in a crisis that we see in the culture, Claudia? Right. The, the, I guess this is a big one, especially now. Yes, yeah, sexual identity. Um, the uh, I can't even keep up with all the letters in the LGBTQ. <laughs> so, so that's a big one. Transgenderism. Uh, they're pushing things that we never even dreamed of ever seeing. We're seeing it now where they're giving loop run to young little kids to try to stop their puberty, to... Uh, um, do sex changes at a very young age. They're going after children. And that's something, that's a crisis that maybe we have never seen in the history, but it, that's a crisis that we're facing today. So the sexual agenda, the whole LGBTQ, LGBT, I can't even do it. <laughs> LGBTQ plus T, yes, can't forget that. Anything else? Jimin? You said the E is equity? Environmental justice. Yeah, if you turn on the news, it doesn't take for you to long to see. They're just constantly talking about climate change and uh, um, using, because uh, stop using vehicles, use electric vehicles. It's a, it's a big push for the uh, environmental. Uh, anything else we're missing? Yes. Age of the earth, yes. Right, right, right. The age of the earth, something the age of the earth. Missing anything else? Yes. Right, the social justice, the critical race theory. Yeah, 
CRT. Oh. Okay. Anything else before? The, uh, yes, the marriage and family is being attacked. Uh, the family. Ma- oh, yes, marriage. Redefinition of marriage, the Supreme Court has done. Uh, another big one I think we haven't listed here is abortion. Uh, Roe versus Wade has been overturned and the country's going crazy over it. Um, so some of the issues that the, uh, cult- our culture... And uh, the church is now even facing where the church is beginning to compromise and being so influenced by the culture. So everything we listed, all these issues here, goes back to the doctrine of creation. The, The book of Genesis, Genesis 1 to 11, we see the beginning of the universe. We see the creation of man. And in Genesis is the foundation for systematic theology. The, the doctrine of creation, Genesis, is the foundation for uh, biblical ethics. Uh, the doctrine of creation is the foundational background context for the gospel. So that, that's why the doctrine of creation is so important. Because w- once you compromise on the doctrine of creation, it, it won't take long for you to see every other doctrine is also compromised. So uh, Wayne Grudem gives a nice, concise definition of what creation is. Creation is, God created the entire universe out of nothing. It was originally very good, and he created it to glorify himself. So we're going to go over three points today. The purpose of creation, the means of creation, and the ethics of creation. So before we uh, get into these points, we're going to bow down for a word of prayer. Father God, we just uh, come to you in the name of your Son. We thank you, we praise you, Lord, that we can come together as your, uh, not only as your creation, but as your children. We thank you, Lord, what, oh, what love that you have bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. We thank you, Lord, that you have adopted us into your family. We praise you because you are a glorious creator. You are majestic in holiness. We praise you for your power displayed in creation, that you created all things, by the word of your power, we pray, Lord, as we contemplate uh, your creation, help us to love you more, help us to magnify you. We pray, Lord, you give me, empower me to communicate effectively. We pray you give us hearts to hear. Uh, in Jesus' name I pray. So the, the, the first um, point we want to go to is the purpose of creation. The purpose of creation, the age-old question that philosophers has been asking throughout the ages is Why? You know, what is the purpose of all these things? Why were humans created? Why are there trees and shrubs and plants? Why are there fishes and elephants and dogs? Why are there uh, stars and planets and galaxies and galaxies? What is the purpose of life? And various worldviews has been given to explain what is the purpose of life. And one of the worldview that influences that, the answer to that question is the worldview of naturalism. Uh, I'm going to erase this. Uh, naturalism, does anybody know what naturalism is? Did anyone want to give a shot on what the worldview of naturalism is? Yes, that, naturalism, correct. Uh, naturalism says all, it denies a supernatural world. They, all, they say the only thing that is, exists is natural forces and natural laws. So all that exists is what we see in the material world. That, that's uh, the naturalism. And this is the predominant worldview in a Western culture, is the worldview of naturalism. And so when we go out to the streets, the, major, the majority of people that you come across will probably hold to a 
naturalistic worldview. And this is the worldview that is taught to all your children if they go to public school, from kindergarten to 12th grade. And this is what is taught. If you send your kids to a college, this is the worldview that is taught. And so for, if you're here today and you hold to naturalistic neo-Darwinian evolution, this is what you believe. This is what you're taught in school. So you're taught that fish becomes philosophers. You're taught molecules become man. And then you're taught bacteria through time and chance acting on matter over a billion years, bacteria becomes Beyonce. This is the neo-Darwinian evolution that you're taught in schools. Um, the, and you have, uh, so you have two worldviews. It's either something, it's either nothing created everything, which is a scientific impossibility, or God created everything. Now, the, the, those who hold to, a, uh, some scientists who hold to the worldview of naturalism, might come back and say that it's impossible to create the world in six days. It's impossible for someone who is dead to rise again in three days and and three nights. That's a biological impossibility. They'll say it's impossible to take a substance like water and turn it into wine. See, the the scientist who holds to uh, the worldview of naturalism, his problem is not miracles. His problem is the God of miracles. See, if you start with the presupposition that God exists, he can create the world in six days. That's not a problem. He can raise someone from the dead who is dead for three days. He can turn water into wine. See, the, the fallen man has two options, Jesus Christ or absurdity. And he'll choose absurdity because he loves his sin. And, and, and this worldview of naturalism is devoid of a creator, is devoid of God. And ultimately, it's a worldview that is completely hopeless. Can, can you think of something more depressing, something more dark, something more hopeless than the naturalistic worldview, which teaches we come from nothing, we're here for absolutely no reason, and we're going to nothing. We're going nowhere. So this, uh, this worldview of naturalism leads to nihilism. Naturalism inevitably leads to nihilism. Does anybody know what that is? That big philosophical word. Nihilism, it's a worldview which means life has no meaning. And there are people who embrace naturalism that eventually come to the conclusion. They live their life, but nothing has no meaning. They live without a purpose. And this worldview sometimes can lead to depression, suicide. And this is incompatible with the biblical worldview because the biblical worldview teaches that Everything, there's a purpose for everything. That life, for everything, there's a meaning. Because God is sovereign. His providential hands govern all things. In Proverbs 16.4, it says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of wrath. So uh, another worldview, if, you, if some people embrace the worldview that life is ultimately meaningless, another worldview that uh, some may embrace is the worldview, a narcissistic worldview, that life is ultimately about themselves. The, the whole concept, the whole reason they live is for me, myself, and I. And a, a child, when they're born, they're born with a sinful nature. And one of the natures that it's born with is a selfish nature. It, it's just worried about itself. If it's hungry, it only cares about long as it gets that food. And it doesn't matter that uh, me and Betsy was, have, have no sleep. It doesn't matter that we're not tired. He needs to be fed. And, uh, and this sinful, selfish nature 
is with us all throughout life until we're born again. Once we're born again, God puts his nature within us. He gives us a spirit and he transforms us. So our hearts that are only bent towards self, we, as we grow and mature, we are more and more bent towards loving God and loving others instead of so being self-focused. So in 2 Corinthians 5.15 it says, And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So, uh, so some live for no reason at all. Some live for themselves. And others live this life to accrue as much materialistic things as possible. They think life is about you know, having the flashiest cars, having a big house, and all those things, in the end, does not satisfy. That is not the purpose for which God created man. The purpose for which God created us is found in Isaiah 43, 7. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up to Isaiah 43, 7. Isaiah 43, 7, it says... Even every one that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yeah, I have made him. So this is huge. If you want to know why God has created you, he created you for his glory. The greatest thing that you can do for yourself is live for the glory of God. Living for the glory of God is greater than living for the pursuit of a Range Rover of a house, of a Porsche, of a Maserati. There's nothing greater that you can live than to God's glory. And not only did God, see, God created mankind for his glory. What about the rest of the creation? That is also for his glory. In Psalm 19.1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God in the sky. Above, proclaim his handiwork. So how would you say that creation glorifies God? Right. That's a good point. God gives us created orders, the creation obeys. But we fall short of God's glory because God also commands us, but we disobey. Any other uh, way you can say that creation glorifies God, Eric? Oh yeah, that's an excellent verse. Um, so that brings me to the next point, the invisible attributes. The God's creation, you get a glimpse of who he is just from his general revelation, his creation. And one of the things we learn, there, there are certain things that you cannot learn from general revelation, like the, the, the gospel message. That's only by special revelation. You need the word of God to know the gospel message. But through general revelation, we can know certain things about God. And one of the things we can know about God is his wisdom. An example of that is babies, infants. Uh, when you look at uh, an infant, you know how much is, it can be demanding to take care of them. Uh, it can be very hard and challenging. But God, in his infinite wisdom, created infants to be adorable and cute. So you can't help but take care of them. <laughs> you, you, you can't help but love them. That, that's the wisdom of God. Yeah. <laughs> that comes from experience. <laughs> the, uh, uh, huh? uh, so, so uh, another thing that displays God's attributes is from, you, you can learn, learn the omniscience of God, and one example is DNA. It, 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 takes a per, it takes a being who's omniscient to create something like DNA. Information science says where, wherever there's information behind that, there's a mind. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yes, yes. That, that, that's amazing how every snowflake is unique. Every fingerprint is unique. Every person, every person that's sitting there, there'll be only one Amory in this world. She has a unique DNA. One Eric in this world, a unique DNA. Unique, uh, so, exactly. So uh, imagine the genius of God that, as a creator that he doesn't make copycats. He's so... The, there's enough genetic information he put DNA where it, you can produce a vast variations. So DNA, exactly, is the information book of life. Just like we see, uh, if you see a book, you know that it cannot create itself. More complex, more sophisticated than any book on earth is DNA. And, and that just points to intelligent design. Another... Uh, example that shows forth the power of God is stars. When you, when you look at stars, you just overwhelm with the sheer power of God. The astrophysicist says that our galaxy, we live in one galaxy, it's the Milky Way galaxy. This one galaxy has 400 billion stars. And, and, and something else to blow your mind, in, in 2020, astronomers estimated there are 2 trillion galaxies in the universe. So we're living in one galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. This galaxy has 400 billion stars, but there's 2 trillion galaxies. And the Bible says, and he made the stars also. you're overwhelmed. This should give you an awe, a reverence for who God is. So creation, you see the display of his power. And um, another um, aspect of creation that shows forth the aspect, um, his attribute is food. Food displays the love of God. God could have created us in such a way that we can only eat corn. But he loves us so much that he created steak, bacon. <laughs> so that shows forth how kind is God to give us taste buds and give food to us that is enjoyable. So before we move on, any questions or comments? That's a beautiful verse. So we looked at the purpose of creation, which is the glory of God. Now we're going to look at the means of creation that God, God um, uses. Um, yes. Good point, yes. <laughs> so the next point, we looked at the purpose of creation, which is the glory of God. Now we're going to look at the means of creation. Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So immediately, one of the first things we learn from Genesis 1.1 is there's God and then there's creation. So you learn the creator-creature distinction. 
if you want to be a good theologian, you have to learn this basic creator creator creature distinction. And the two um, aspects you must hold together simultaneously is the uh, transcendence of God and the imminence of God. If you hold these two attributes together, it prevents you from being in error when it comes to the doctrine of creation. The transcendence of God, does anybody know what that means? Yes, you hit the, you hit the bullseye, Kaltume. Uh, the uh, transcendence of God is God is above everything. He's independent. He's distinct from his creation. And uh, if, you, if you adhere to the transcendence of God, then you avoid many errors that people make. You avoid the uh, false teaching of pantheism. What is that? Pantheism. Yes, God is in all things and all things are God. That's a, and this is the world, pantheism is the worldview. And, and pantheism blurs the distinction between creator and God. They say everything is God, God is in everything. And this is the worldview behind the New Age movement, pantheism. This is the worldview behind um, Eastern mysticism, pantheism. This is the worldview that ultimately undergirds pagan religions that you see. Those animistic religions, the tribes, they all, uh, pantheism is what undergirds um, the uh, religion of the pagans. Uh, uh, If you hold to the doctrine of transcendence, you'll never become a Mormon. Because the Mormons teach that one day they're going to become gods on another planet. So they blur that distinction between the creator and the creature. So you'll, uh, you'll never become a New Age person. You'll never become a Eastern mystic. And uh, you'll never become a Mormon if you hold to the uh, doctrine of transcendence. And simultaneously, you have to hold to the uh, imminence of God. What does that mean? Yes, yes, that's it. God is involved in his creation. That's the doctrine of imminence, that God is... Uh, involved in his creation. And uh, uh, if you hold to the doctrine of imminence, it, you would avoid being a deist. Uh, I, I know Bob mentioned deism in his uh, sermon. Does anybody remember what deism is? Yes, the, exactly. So uh, deism teaches that God initially created everything and like the uh, the watchmaker, he just wound it up and let it go and let the natural processes take it. So he's no longer involved in his creation. And what uh, the deism denies the doctrine of God's providence. Because God, the Bible says, is not a deist. He's intimately involved in his creation. He knows, the, the, the Bible says he knows the sparrow that falls to the ground, even the hair on our head is numbered. The Bible says in, I believe, First Peter that Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for us. The deist God does, doesn't care. But the biblical God is the God of providence. And sovereign and in control of every aspect of our lives. Um, so another aspect we learn from Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, something else that we learn is the person that created everything is who? Yes, it's the triune God. Not everybody knows that because you go to the Jehovah Witness. You know who they say created everything? Michael the Archangel. They say that God first created Michael the Archangel, which they say is Jesus, and then through Michael, he created everything. So next time the watchtower knocks at your door, you can uh, show them Isaiah 44.24. Isaiah 44.24 it says, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things 
who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. So it was not archangels that created everything. It was the triune God. God the Son, God the, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit created all things. So just like the triune God is uh, active in the work of redemption, the triune God is involved in the work of creation. So from the doctrine of, from Genesis, just from the first chapter, we see that there is only one creator and he created all things. That in the beginning, before there was time, matter, and space, God existed. And uh, something else we learned from Genesis 1 is the word there for um, created, creation, for created, is the word bara. And uh, bara, the creation, bara. And that's a supernatural creation. Um, and there's another word for creation, which is asa, which is uh, bara is to create and asa is to make. So that, that word for bara, when the Bible uses that, is only distinctly referring to God. But as humans, we also create. So when, when it says bara, asa, God can do both. God can uh, create supernaturally and also he can take um, pre-existing substances and make something out of it. But we can only do this, this asa to make. Just like you take pre-existing chicken and spices and make food, you can take uh, concrete and make a building. So we, we're able to create as well. Creative, yes. We're able to create, and that's what we image God by doing that as well. But something unique in Genesis is that he creates how? It's a bara x, yes. It's a creation, he creates out of nothing. And this is huge because when we look at ancient Near Eastern religions at that time, the Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, the ancient Egypt, their gods used um, matter that's already available and then they created. But the biblical God alone, it, this makes him distinct. He creates out of nothing. That's why in Psalm 96.5 it says, All the gods of the nations are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So God is, creates ex nihilo. And it's easy for us to read Genesis 1-1 and say, okay, he created everything out of nothing. But just imagine that. He didn't have to consult engineers, architects, marine biologists, astronauts, astrophysicists. All this he created out of nothing. Not even uh, humans with as much intellect. Nobody in Mensa... All the intellects in this world combined cannot even make a grain of sand out of nothing. But God creates all this out of nothing. He creates the circulatory system, the respiratory system, all these variety of animals. There's animals in the jungle that we have never discovered. There's animals in the ocean we have never discovered. There's galaxies upon galaxies upon galaxies, like it was mentioned, the two trillion that we've never seen or heard of. And God created them all out of nothing. That's a good point. I think that's a more incommunicable attributes where um, God, that, that's something God alone does. But the prosperity preachers would twist that and they also would blur that distinction between creator and creation and say they can also speak things into existence. And that's the error they make. Emery?
Right. Amen. And, and when you consider the things like the, the digestive system, even the brain, as much as the, so many neurologists are in the world, top scientists, we still don't know all the things the brain is capable of doing. And when you consider all these things, how glorious is Christ? Just like we uh, heard from the sermon today in, in Colossians 1.16, that all things were created by Christ. Uh, it, the, the, the doctrine of creation ought to want you to give him glory. Uh, he is majestic in power. He, 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 he is able to create the, the, a small atom, bacteria, to something as complex as the human eye and brain. And, and we see that in Revelations 4, we see a small glimpse of heaven. And in heaven, we see the 24 elders. They take their crowns and lay it at Christ's feet. And look what they say in Revelations 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So once you comprehend who God is and what he has done, you can't help but give him glory. You cannot help but worship him. He is worthy of our worship for what he has done, for who he is. See, the, and this ought, the doctrine of creation ought to make you give yourself more to Christ. We, we, the, he is worthy of our service. He is worthy of our sacrifice. He is worthy of our praise. Christ is worthy. And uh, Genesis 1, verses 3 to 5, we're going to keep going in the verses. Um, yeah, the, so verse 2 says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And uh, the Hebrew word there for in Genesis 1 for day is the Hebrew word yom. So when you are studying original languages such as Hebrew or Greek, uh, those words have meaning in their original context, in the immediate context. Um, so the context will determine what those Greek word or Hebrew words mean. And in the immediate context of Genesis 1, the word there for day is yom. And you see the immediate context is clear. It says, and there was evening, and then there was morning the first day. So here is a 24-hour period. It's, it's, uh, you, can't, you have to do exegetical gymnastics to get over this. And uh, so we see it's a literal 24-hour day. And, uh, and this goes, uh, I know our church subscribes to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, it says, In the beginning, uh, verse, chapter 4, verse 1, In the beginning, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was pleased to create or make the world and all things in it, both visible and invisible, in six period and all very good. He did this to manifest the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. So the uh, 1689 Confession teaches in six-day literal creation. So why do you think when the Bible is so clear, others try to uh, put other meanings in the text to make it say something else than it says? Why do you think people do that? Good point. Yeah. Suppression of the truth. And uh, I think also fallen man... Uh, the culture itself is very, uh, the culture is warped with naturalism and to be more uh, accepting in the size of, uh, eyes of this world that we try to change what Genesis says to fit the culture. Um, so there's various views in terms of the uh, doctrine of creation that um, one of the views that uh, people hold is the, uh, the gap theory. The gap theory teaches between, it teaches between Genesis 1.1 and 1.2. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness 
was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the gap theory teaches that God in Genesis 1-1 created the world in billions of years and then some some catastrophic event occurred and then verse 2, he recreated the world in six days. Um, What what would you say is some uh, flaws with this view, the gap theory? Do you see anything wrong with the gap theory? What would you say is wrong with it? Yes, good point. That, that's the, yeah, it's an assumption, it's speculation. Nowhere it teaches two creations in the Bible. Right. Good point. Emery? And we have a theological problem with the gap theory because if the catastrophic event happened now, everything dies. But how do we have death without a fall? So here in this view, you have death before the fall. That's a theological problem. Another uh, view is the uh, literary framework view. And this view is, uh, is popular today in seminaries, uh, literary framework view. I know Meredith Klein from Westminster Seminary holds to this uh, literary framework view. It, it teaches that Genesis 1 is not a historical narrative, it's uh, poetry. So the language there in day is figurative and metaphorical. Oh. Right, that's a problem. Yeah, Adam is the first created human. Yeah. Through sin, right. So how do you have death without the fall? Good point. Um, Yeah, the literary framework view that Genesis, they say, is not historical narrative. It's uh, poetry or figurative metaphorical. What would you say is wrong with this view? Good point. Good point. Um, yes, he quoted Genesis not as a poetry or figurative, but as a literal history. And also, when you read the book of Genesis, you see it's, it's a historical narrative. It says, chapter 5, so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. But notice, they, they don't read that, else, that view nowhere else in the Bible. When Jonah was in the belly of the whale, they don't say that's uh, 3,000 years. <laughs> but only in Genesis. But the, but the uh, literary frame, you see the immediate context of Genesis. It says, evening and day, evening and day, evening and day. So that, that rules that out. Another view is the uh, day-age view. This view teaches that the, uh, the days there are geological ages. So not literal 24-hour days. They teach as a- literal ages. And uh, I think the context of Genesis will rule that out. They say evening and day, evening and day. Um, this is a, this and now this, four. Uh, this view would have the, uh, <clears throat> this is the view that will say they have pu- uh, humans existed before the creation of Adam. And this view is uh, biologos holds this view. Theistic evolution. Uh, Does anybody know what theistic evolution is? 
the theistic evolution? Right, right. They said, yep, God, you, they, they teach that God uh, used evolution to create everything. So the, uh, that's the means that God uses. So, um, and uh, any problem you see with theistic evolution? You can, I think we'll go all day saying the problem with Genesis, uh, theistic evolution. The, uh, and uh, people confuse evolution with science. Evolution is not science. It's historical science. So there's a, it's a category error to say evolution is science. Because um, science is, uh, evolution is not science in the sense of biology, chemistry, physics. Because science is testable, repeatable, observable. Where evolution, you cannot test it, repeat it, observe it. And uh, there's no evidence that substantiates evolution, where you look at the trend, there's no, and you look at the fossil records, there's no transitional forms in the fossil records. Right, yeah. Yes. It's, uh, it, I like to call it a, a fairy tale for grown-ups. <laughs> the uh, ev- evolution, um, and, but biblical science is substantiated by, si- si- biblical creation is substantiated by science. Because when you look out in the world, that's what exactly what biblical creation tells you is exactly what you observe. Biblical creation says in Genesis, um, one species beget another species. So what we look, when we look at creation, what do we see? Cats begetting cats, dogs begetting dogs. Those two don't interbreed. Um, so that's exactly what you see in uh, creation. So does anybody know the difference between macro and microevolution? Because I don't want you to get confused. Because we believe, yes, uh, Claudia. Yes. Yes. So, so we believe as Christians, microevolution. That's the uh, nat- um, adaptation. Um, so it's like. Mutation, that's adaptation. See, bacteria and antibiotics, that's an example of microevolution, where the, you know, the bacteria through mutation adapts, now is resistant to the bacteria. Or Darwin's finches on Galapagos Island, where those finches adapted to the environment, and uh, you know, their beaks adapted as well to eat these seeds. And, uh, so that's, and our, our, our skin color, um, different people live in different areas in the world, some are closer to the equator, so through adaptation, some of us have more melanin in our skin, and that's an example of microevolution. But that's a far jump to what macroevolution is. My, macroevolution says one species changed to another species, and we don't believe that, and that there's no evidence to substantiate that. So going back to um, the uh, theistic evolution, there's so many... Um, Flaws there that's not compatible with the biblical worldview is one, if you hold to theistic evolution, then that means that uh, Adam and Eve, there was other humans before Adam and Eve. We know in the Genesis account, Adam was the uh, first human, and um, so he might have been a theistic evolutionist. Uh, Another, um, that that means if theistic evolution is true, that means that uh, Adam had parents. If uh, theistic evolution is true, that means that um, human death was before the fall. So, and that's just a few examples of why uh, theistic evolution is incompatible with the biblical worldview. And uh, the final is uh, that I want to share is young earth creation and... Uh, there's only a, um, I, would say, I would say this is the biblical world, uh, biblical right view. Uh, there's only a few seminaries that teach that. One of them is the Master's Seminary in California. Um, so the majority of the church believed in young earth creation. And they believed, majority of the church until the 18th century believed that the uh, earth was created about four to 5,000 years before Christ. But once in the 18th century, something happened, the uh, Enlightenment. 
And from the influence of the Enlightenment, the uh, people started changing their views. And you, you notice something, all three of these views have in common is all these want to add millions and billions of years into the Genesis account. So, um, yeah, the, so we looked at the uh, purpose of creation. The purpose of creation is for the glory of God. We saw the means of creation. The means that God uses bara ex nihilo. He created everything out of nothing. God himself, the triune God. No angels was part of, this cre- uh, part of creation. God shares his glory with no other. And the, the final point we want to look at is the ethics of creation. The doctrine of creation has huge practical implications. Um, if you hold to the uh, doctrine of creation, it would uh, prevent you from um, becoming a asceticism. What does that mean, asceticism? A doctrine of creation would prevent you from falling into this error. You got it. You got it. That's it. The, uh, so the doctrine of uh, asceticism will prevent you from sitting on the side of the curb, shaving your head, chanting a mantra, um, because it, it, asceticism teaches that the... The, the, the less you have, the more spiritual you are. And, uh, and the biblical doctrine of creation, when God created everything, what did he say? It is good. He didn't say the material things are bad. So, and uh, I like this quote by C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis says, there is no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life into us. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. Um, so because of the doctrine of creation, we can eat, drink, marry to the glory of God. Um, so the, uh, another error that the uh, doctrine of creation would prevent you uh, from becoming is it prevents you from becoming a wild-eyed environmental activist. You see, uh, those who are environmental activists, if you ever encounter one of those, they, uh, they are, what undergirds ultimately their worldview is pantheism. They believe all is God and God is an all and that demonstrates why they do what they do. And when they hear that, you know, you just, uh, in the restaurant, just slaughtered a cow and ate it, they would have sleepless nights. They would cry over that. They would, when they hear that trees are being cut down, they'll be in complete sorrow. But those same, very same people, you ask, what about the six? I remember I asked the environmental advocate what she was advocating me, her agenda, her activism. I said, you know, what about the six million babies that are being murdered. She could care less. That's because she's devoid of a biblical worldview. See, in the biblical worldview, the biblical ethics derive from the doctrine of creation. And one of the ethics that we derive from the uh, doctrine of creation is the sanctity of human life. The uh, Genesis, going back to Genesis, the doctrine of creation, Genesis teaches in uh, Genesis 1, and 7 that man was created in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, because Christians, we hold to the doctrine of creation, we believe that every person from the child with Down syndrome to the airbrush model to the uh, child in the womb to the disabled person, the elderly person in the nursing home, all have infinite value, dignity, and worth. But the environmental activists can't say the same. That's why they could care less about the child in the womb. They care more about the animal that's being slaughtered for food. Um, so we have the, uh, sa- the uh, sanctity of human life derived from the doctrine of creation. We also have the uh, sanctity of labor. Uh, labor is a good thing. It's a blessing from God. And that was not a result of the fall. 
We see in Genesis 2 that God put him in, uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam in the garden, he said to work it and to keep it, to provide, to protect, to cultivate and to work it. Um, so, and with the result of the fall is the, uh, the hard labor, the sweat you must you know, earn from the sweat of your brow. Labor becomes hard, but work is a good thing that, that, uh, that God has given us. So the doctrine of creation should give us a strong Protestant work ethic. We should be good witnesses at our jobs. We, no one should say we're lazy. Um, because, you know, God, work is a good thing that God stewarded. Uh, going back to the environmental activists, we, we shouldn't be environmental activists, but that at the same time, we should be good stewards of God's creation. We shouldn't abuse um, animals. We shouldn't um, throw uh, mercury into the water supply. We should be good stewards of the um, creation. But at the same time, we cannot fall into this extremism. Uh, so, the, yeah, the doctrine um, of creation also, I think someone, that when I mentioned one of the issues the facing our culture, and one of them is the, uh, one of the issues is the uh, attack on the family. I think Naveen said that. Uh, so, we learn from the uh, doctrine of creation, not only the sanctity of human life, the sanctity of labor, but the sanctity of marriage. We, we, we see in Genesis that God creates Adam and Eve and God defines and tells us what marriage is. And he says, what did he say marriage is? Between a man and a woman. So it, it doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says. We recognize what God says. And he said marriage is between a man and a woman. And uh, another thing we learned from the doctrine of, same thing, the sanctity of marriage also refutes homosexuality because in Genesis, God didn't create, he created man and woman, not man and man. So the homosexuality goes against God's divine design. Another thing that we see in, from the doctrine of creation, God is the sovereign. He decides um, what gender we are born. And what the world wants to do is they want to blur the distinctions. And so one of the things we learn from the doctrine of creation is God is the creator. We are born into this world. I didn't decide, you know, what ethnicity I am, what height I was going to be, what gender I'm going to be. God decides it. So if I go against that, that's rebelling against God's sovereignty. That's rebelling against God's providence. So God decides what gender we are. So remember, I go, what is the, when I ask you, what are the issues facing the church and the culture? It can be tied back all to the doctrine of creation. And now when we minister to the uh, person that's transgender, we don't have to uh, give in to their delusion, but we can speak the truth to them in love and tell them the doctrine of creation, how God's creation, there's a purpose behind it. God has created us for his glory. So when you live in a way that's against him, such as homosexuality or transgender, you're falling short of the glory of God. You're going against the purpose which God has created you. So we see that if you compromise the book of Genesis, your whole foundation is going to be unraveled from the bottom up. So in Psalm 11.3, it says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? So it's important as, as the church and the culture is having an onslaught of secularism, LGBTQ, critical race theory, it's important that we be founded upon the word of God, then we won't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Any questions, comments? Yeah, I believe they have an open marriage, right? That's a defiance against... Uh-huh. Any questions or comments before we close? Mm. So 
Yeah, the culture of death really has its claws in the culture. The be uh, multiply. You can't do that if you're a homosexual. Mm. Good point. The, uh, the, uh, the, the, in the 17th, 19th, 18th century, you see Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, Charles Darwin, uh, all those 
And that's a good example. Ideas have consequences. And we see those ideas taking foot, and we see the, the sexual revolution and the havoc that it's causing all throughout the world. So this is a reminder as a church. We're in an ideological warfare. We have to be on guard. We have to take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We must stand with the sword of the Spirit, ready to refute every um, heresy. And that's why I'm so happy we're going through systematic theology. The only, I remember, I think it was Conrad Mubewe who said, uh, having theology is like having an immune system. If you don't have, if you're not grounded in theology, every doctrine will wreak, come and wreak havoc and kill you. So us studying systematic theology and going through Wayne Gruden is going to allow us to stand ground when all the worldly ideologies and philosophies hit us. So I'm going to close for a word of prayer. Uh, Father God, we just uh, come to you in the name of your son. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us a privilege um, to breathe your air, eat your food. Um, thank you, Lord, for salvation. We thank you, Lord, for every blessing that you have given us. Help us, Lord, to glorify you, for that's the reason that you have created us. Help us to love you more. Help us to serve you. Help us not to be self-centered. We pray, Lord, that we can uh, not just hear theology but, and uh, grow, um, just have a bigger head, but help the theology to change our lives, that we may be more holy, more godly, and live more unto your glory. In Jesus' name I pray.